0: This is Lost or Found, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health care provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. And now, here's the host of the show, Dr. Michelle Choi. Hi, welcome back to the show. On
1: today's episode, I'll be speaking with Rabbi Eli Cohen about Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism. It's a fascinating and thought-provoking conversation as we talk about God and how God can be understood and described. It was during this interview, when we were sitting outside in my backyard, that a bird almost landed on my head during the recording. It still makes me laugh thinking about it as I initially tried to maintain my cool during the interview, but really thinking, what the hell was that? But it was really shocking, feeling the bird's sudden flap of its wing on the top of my head, almost like a slap. All of us have sat outside, some of us have been pooped upon, but how many of us have had our heads as landing pieces for our feathered friends? Granted, my head is really big, and one could describe it as a lot of surface area, but still, it was remarkable and unforgettable. During that moment, we had to take a break because I think it was visible that we were both shocked. I was shocked as I didn't see the bird coming. However, in that interview, it's apparent that the sounds of the birds are everywhere. They were really everywhere that day, chirping and singing their song. Rabbi Eli had mentioned that the Torah reading of Shabbat Shira had just passed and that it is custom to feed the birds just prior because they offer praise to God for the miracle. The chirp of song is the beautiful talent of birds and we acknowledge this gift by giving them food. After the day had ended, of course, I was back in my thinking place, my bathroom. Imagining the toilet here could also be appropriate. And as I thought about what had happened, with the bird on my head, I started reading. Birds have a powerful symbolism, and they are an inspiration to us to aim higher and reach our goals despite the obstacles that we face along the way. They are considered messengers from the spiritual realms, and they symbolize peace, transformation and growth, and freedom. Although I heard the birds all around me that day, and it's evident on the audio, I really ended up listening when it came so unusually close, shockingly close. Since I need some encouragement in this new path that I'm creating for myself and have my own uncertainties, maybe it's a reminder for me to just keep on walking from a spiritual friend. Anyway, that's how I decided I would like to describe that unforgettable moment. Maybe a spiritual high five, my forehead and the bird's wing, I attended elementary school in a largely Jewish community in Queens, New York, such that once a week, the majority of my class attended Hebrew school together, walking from our public school to the synagogue after school was dismissed. I don't think you could have met another Asian who so badly wanted to be Jewish than me. I didn't understand religion so much then, but in my child's mind, I wondered if it was possible to ask my parents if I could also attend. Hanukkah always seemed so amazing to me as well, getting a gift every day. And today, I'm excited to have the chance to discuss Kabbalah, the most famous form of Jewish mysticism, as an attempt to understand God, God's world, and essence with Rabbi Eli Cohen. Rabbi Eli Cohen, serves as a spiritual leader of Chadesh Yamanu, the Jewish Renewal Community of Santa Cruz. He received ordination in January 2005. In the lineage of his teachers, Rabbi Eli brings a strong commitment to bridge religious and progressive values and to carry the depth and joy of Jewish spirituality and practice into the emerging paradigm. Welcome to Lost or Found, Rabbi Eli, and thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you for having me and for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: Oh, I am too. And Rabbi Eli, before we begin, can you please tell us about yourself?
2: Sure. You got the whole hour? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I am uh, a rabbi serving the congregation known as Chodesh Menu, the Jewish Renewal Community of Santa Cruz, and I have been with the congregation since 2001 although ordained only in 2005. And um, I come from uh, the lineage of Rabbi Zalman Schachter Shalomi, uh, who was a phenomenal teacher, passed just a few years ago, whose life's work saw us bridging worlds, as it were. His uh, favorite expression was, the only way we're going to get it together is together. So how do we learn from each other and share with each other? This is the... uh, the lineage I come out of. I grew up in a somewhat traditional home, very American, but very traditionally Jewish as well. And so I bring that uh, along with me, as well as um, some progressive activism when I was both in high school, even college, post-college. So all that comes together to inform um, who I am and what I do.
1: I love that, that we're going to do this together, together. <laughs> And Rabbi Eli, as we talk about the Kabbalah today, can you explain to us what the Kabbalah is and the difference with the Torah?
2: Sure. <laughs> that could also fill up our time. They're great <laughs> words, both of them, and they both have so much meaning to them. Um, let me start with Torah. Um, Torah is sometimes pronounced Torah. They're both correct. Uh Torah, in a very narrow understanding, uh, and I use that word narrow in quotes, refers to the first five books of the Bible, often called the five books of Moses, um, particularly when it's in scroll form, which is how we read it liturgically and traditionally. Um, But Torah comes from the same root word in Hebrew as parents or teachers. And so while in older English it was often translated as the law, Uh, It does have laws, but it has parables, it has um, genealogy, it has history, and so forth. Uh, Torah, in a broader sense, is really uh, the guidance or instruction that we're given. In fact, our mystical literature says that uh, before the world was created, the Torah was created. It was like a blueprint for how the world could be created. So, therefore, in a narrower sense, it's the first part of the Bible. In a broader sense, it could be looked at as the whole Bible. And in another sense, it's all wisdom or understanding that comes out of it one of our um, important prayers when someone is called in the synagogue um, service to the torah for an honor or a reading um, they say a blessing that says blessed are you who has given us torah but it also says who gives us torah and it's both past tense and present tense so literally thousands of years ago carved in stone and also, every time we take it out and study it and get an insight and share that insight, it's present tense. It's an ongoing revelation. So that is a little bit about what Torah means. Like um, truth
1: in a way, the ongoing yes, re- revelation. Yes,
2: certainly, yeah, exactly look at it that way, absolutely. Um, in fact, it, it says it's a Torah of truth. That's part of what the blessing itself does say. Um and so it says everything is in it. Turn it over and turn it over for everything is in it. Torah ultimately then becomes a mirror for us. Now I suppose in other traditions that may also be true, that sacred scripture becomes as a mirror. Perhaps all literature could do that. But certainly Torah, in the way we relate to it um, as sacred scripture, becomes a mirror for us or else it's just a fossil. Mm-hmm. So... It's important to read it in historical context. It's also important to read it how it speaks to us today, how we wrestle with it, grapple with it, um, where it might teach us positively and where it might teach us negatively, sometimes what not to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all of that is Torah. Our whole conversation could be about that. Um, Kabbalah or Kabbalah, both pronunciations are correct, it, from our perspective, is not necessarily separate. It's just uh, another aspect of of really our relationship with the sacred, with the divine, with God. Kabbalah comes from the word to receive. It means the receiving. And uh, it is often thought of as the mystical tradition within Judaism. And that was a received, often oral tradition. Actually, Torah originally was an oral tradition before it was written down. Uh, Kabbalah certainly was. And, um, but it, it tends to look at things that are much more beneath the surface. I say they're related because, um, in Judaism, even in our most fundamentalist side, but certainly Judaism more broadly, um, Torah is never read only literally. It is said that there is pardes, um, what's called paradise, but it's really, and that's a loan word, I believe from Persian, but it, um, it means an orchard, but it really is an acronym in the Hebrew for different deeper levels of meaning from the literal through allegorical and so forth to the deeper mystical understandings. Um, And so therefore, really, you can't separate the two out. Uh, Sometimes they are. There are people who would look at only uh, a more legalistic um, side uh, or a more literal even side of, of Judaism and Torah and there are some who might only look at the mystical literature, but really the tradition weds them. They can't really be seen as uh, one without the other. So my guess is you're probably interested a little bit more what Kabbalah really is about. What is it? And um, there are many aspects to it. Uh, we originally were supposed to meet uh, at an earlier time on the relatively minor Jewish holiday of Tubishvat, which is the New Year of the Trees. Trees, again, literally the trees right here in front of us and how important they are to us, right, to life. And the tree of life. So we, we celebrate it from that perspective. The tree of life is one of those bridges between Torah and the mystical literature. In the Bible, you have literally the tree of life in the book of Genesis. Um, but as it's further developed and understood both in later scripture um, and then beyond, it refers to the Torah. It says right in the Bible, it is a tree of life to those who grasp it, who take hold of it. Um, And so the Torah itself is called the tree of life. In fact, even the wooden spokes that the scroll is wrapped around are called the trees of life. And uh, in Kabbalah, the tree of life then goes on to understand how God, how the divine, how the sacred, starts to unfold before us in the universe. You and I had talked at one point at another point, about um, the book of Genesis. And in Genesis, there is a beautiful verse where our ancestor Jacob wakes up and says, uh, how awesome is this place. God was here, and God was in this place, and I didn't know. Mm -hmm. It's all around us. Uh, it's, It's all the time and all around us. And so all these things are to help us bring greater awareness of the divine sacred right here in our midst. So the tree of life is right here. And it can be accessed in so many ways. So one of the ways that we come to understand it is through what is called the spherot. Um The sfirot usually... Trans- if I may ask yeah. You,
1: yeah. Would you, would it be appropriate to say that the Kabbalah is a way in which to try to understand God and God's world?
2: Yes, absolutely. Actually, that's a beautiful way to understand it. Mm. Um, be- yes, because God... The sacred is unfolding and around us all the time, as we read in Genesis. So how can we come to understand, how we come to relate to it? And so we're using it on all different levels, our, our awareness. Mm-hmm. So a bodily, physical sensation uh, uh, is a way to come to understand God. In fact, um, one of the understandings in Kabbalah that we focus on, especially in Jewish renewal, the branch of renewal that I come out of, um is what is known as the four worlds, that there are different worlds happening simultaneously. They're all right now, right here, right now. I mean, certainly in our own lives, we live in the physical world, there's no way around it, but so many forget that there's so much more to it than that. We have our whole internal world, right? World of love, world of spirit and so forth. So the four worlds are loosely understood as a world of the physical or doing or making, uh, a world, and an, sort of an emotional realm, uh, a level of more of uh, the mind, both intellect and imagination, uh, spirit. They're often seen hierarchically, but they're not. They're all contained within each other, these four worlds. And in the mystical literature... And
1: I re- really love that, you know, that yeah. it's beyond this, this physical world that we know or see or feel.
2: Yes, you know? yeah.
1: And it's kind of is you know, it sounds like in in a way Kabbalah could almost be a way in which to commune with God or all these realms.
2: Beautiful. Yeah. Um, we often spend time in our tradition, I believe in Christian traditions too, and certainly in Islamic traditions, talking about the name of God or the names of God. So much could be said about that. But one understanding for us of the name of God are these four worlds. Mm-hmm. That is the name of God. In other words, all existence is a way to come to understand God. Nothing is devoid of uh, a possibility of approaching and coming to understand God mm-hmm. that way. This is again where the mystical and the more mainstream, you could call it uh, normative understandings, are the same. There's a divine spark in absolutely everything. And our job as spiritual beings, our job as Jews or as religious, whatever. Perspective you come from, is to liberate that spark. In other words, to connect with it so that it can be reunited with the One. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, I would say in answer to your question, absolutely, it is a way for us to understand that and relate to it.
1: It's interesting what you say in terms of the the body, and then the you know the body, the mind, the emotional world, the spirit world, because. I think we disservice ourselves so much by only recognizing one, and many of us don't even live in our bodies, like our minds are elsewhere, Yeah. but to not recognize the other realms. Yeah. How much more could our lives be enriched if we see all of that?
2: You really tap into something that, again, bridges the mystical and uh, more normative practice that I would love to mention for you. We have something called a mitzvah, or a mitzvah in our tradition, mm-hmm. mitzvot being the plural usually. Um often transit as commandments, and it is commandments, the divine commandments, or we might call it the divine imperatives. How does our relationship with God, our relationship with the sacred, um, really call on us to act in this world? And therefore, these mitzvot, these commandments, are a way of bridging the spiritual and the physical. Um, so, for example, every everything in the physical world becomes an opportunity for us to make this connection. Which is why um, we say a blessing before doing almost any act, whether it be uh, ritual, oftentimes it's understood as ritual commandments and ethical commandments. Um, ritual ones perhaps being, for example, um, reading the Torah or lighting the Sabbath candles and so forth, whereas uh, ethical ones might be seen of as uh, perhaps giving charity or um, treating your fellow human being with kindness. But from a traditional perspective, those things aren't even separate. Mm -hmm. All of them are ways to sort of bring everything to everything, right? And so the physical world, absolutely everything becomes a way for us to um, connect with God, connect with the sacred.
1: And when you describe the blessing and what you described could be, you know, blessings in your everyday life, it seems like it's a kind of a way in which to bridge you know, the spiritual world or the connection, lighting the candle, mm-hmm. yeah. the reminder.
2: Yes. Everything. Absolutely everything. Let's look at the, uh, the obligation to give charity, for mm-hmm. example. And I say it's an obligation. In our tradition, it's called a mitzvah. It's a commandment. You must give charity. Now, of course, better to give with an open heart. Give with caring. The English word charity, I believe, comes from that word. In Hebrew, it's called tzedakah, from the word tzedek, meaning justice, and we are bidden to do justice by caring for others, including giving charity. Even the poorest person has an ability to give. And so is that a, an ethical uh, mitzvah or is it a ritual mitzvah? I would say it's both. And uh, so so many of these things uh, become like that for us. Saying a blessing before we eat, mm-hmm. you know, that is a ritual commandment is it not also ethical as well to pause and to reflect where does this food come from? What went into it both in terms of um, the divine spiritual energy, the nature that brought it forth, the uh, people who harvested it, you know, uh, and so forth. So um, all of that gets tied in. And all this is a way for us to, I think, raise our consciousness, our awareness um, in practically every action that we do, um, everything we eat, everything we do, and ultimately in everything we are.
1: I find what you say so profound and interesting that it is a commandment to give, that it's our individual responsibility to almost help another because we have been helped, our connection.
2: Yeah, yeah. To be
1: reminded of that.
2: I'd say so much of the Torah. Uh, And I know this is true in my, in in other traditions as Mm -hmm. well, certainly in the sister traditions uh, in the Abrahamic um, faiths of Christianity and Islam and Baha'i and others, as well as in the Eastern traditions. I think all of them call on us to care for each other. The so-called golden rule is in practically every tradition. Um, All of them have ways for us to practically take care of each other. Um, take care of society, and um, so I I would say definitely, uh, without question, it asks us to do that. Um,
1: No matter how rich or poor, because when you hear stories, it seems like sometimes the people who have less are more willing to give, while there's so many people who have more who may be a little bit more stringent. But it's all of our responsibilities, I guess, to recognize one another.
2: You know, I can't remember who said, I think it was Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel said something along the lines that um, basically when things are not functioning properly in society this way, um, not all are guilty, but all are responsible. And I think the Torah and our traditions really tell us this. We have what's called a covenantal um, tradition. We have a covenant. Uh, It's... uh, obligation you could almost call it contractual relationship almost between us as human beings and god and the and the divine um and we have our role to play we work together to make the world a better place um there's no there's no slacking off from this Mm -hmm. you know um that's part of what we in that's part of what the six days shalt thou labor is all about how do we labor and for what do we labor and it's also what the seventh day thou shalt rest is all about as well
1: May I ask you, do you think it's easier to make the world a better place if we recognize a higher power?
2: Well, I would certainly come from that understanding that place. Um, Not surprisingly, I (laughs) I serve as a rabbi and this is probably at the foundation of everything that I am. So I would say yes. Um, But I would also say not necessarily because there's so many ways to come to that understanding and what that even means. I mean, this certainly ventures into a whole discussion of what we mean when we say God mm-hmm. um, or even spirit or spirituality. There are people who do tremendous good works in the world who do not believe in God either because they're coming at it from a atheist or agnostic place or, or a be, love
1: standpoint
2: or a love standpoint or they're in a tradition that doesn't uh, mm-hmm. as my Buddhist friends often remind us you know it's a non-theistic uh, non-deistic tradition so um, I I, so I would say not necessarily so but I certainly believe that when we really scratch the surface we're kind of pretty close to saying the same thing at least that's my perspective um, in Judaism <sighs> I mentioned something earlier about the name of God. All existence is the name of God. The name of God is one. It says right there in the Bible. It's all one. So that sounds like almost the, uh, you know, maybe... Uh, is that
1: a, the literal translation, one then?
2: One. Mm-hmm. It, the, the Shema, the watchword of our faith, is that, uh, hear it, get it, that Adonai, this divine name that can't even be pronounced or limited in any way, which represents all existence, is one. Um, so that's why oftentimes, depends on how we understand God, within a very Jewish understanding, all existence becomes the name of God. And therefore, how could you not believe in existence? <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Because we are here, yeah. We are
2: here, there, there is nothing but is. Mm-hmm. In fact, interestingly, in Hebrew, there is no word for is. There's no present tense verb to be. There's past and future of to be. But present tense just is.
1: (laughs) So how do you describe the present tense in Jewish faith?
2: Well, interesting, grammatically, Mm -hmm. present tense in general is understood, uh, I think it's called a participle grammatically, ongoing action. Mm -hmm. So uh, an ongoing action and the doer of that action are not separate in Hebrew grammar. So, for example, we can call God ose, which means maker or mm-hmm. doer. Right? Ose shalom, the maker of peacemaker. But it also literally means making peace. Mm-hmm. Or we call God bore. Uh, bore means creator or is creating. It's ongoing present tense action.
1: Okay, so it's like present tense in the verb uh, context, like to do, like as you yeah.
2: said. Doer and doing cannot mm-hmm. be understood as separate. Uh, In Hebrew, that's just grammar, Mm -hmm. right? So, But I would say, taking it closer back to the direct conversation about God, is that I would assert it's all about presence. It's all about the presence. God is the presence, the existence. God is existence. God is our existence. And so, therefore, our whole tradition is about trying to keep us aware of that, really at all times, if possible.
1: I love that because how many of us are not even aware of what we are doing?
2: All of us, much <laughs> of the time, right? So that's why I think maybe perhaps it's often said that's why they call it a practice, mm-hmm. whether it be meditation or prayer or study. Um, why all our traditions are trying to bring us to greater awareness of, of our spirituality and our higher purpose. Um, I have a friend, a, a cantor locally, who wrote a beautiful song where the catchphrase, the chorus is, and we walk sightless among miracles. Such a beautiful phrase. Um, it's, it's all there are all, all around us, just like we referred to with Jacob in Genesis, God is in this place and I didn't know, you know. Hebrew, the Torah, originally is written without punctuation. Punctuation and also what's called trope, the cantillation chanting marks, were added later based on it being an oral tradition. But if you think about it, punctuation is inherently an interpretation. So um, if I were to say God was in this place and I didn't know, as opposed to God is in this place and I didn't know, right? So orally, you can hear... How the grammar, how the punctuation would shift, mm-hmm. right? And they mean very, very different things. Um, but all of those are true.
1: Yeah, I love that because I just can't see life being as so difficult if we knew that God or one was all around us. You know that there are sightless miracles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like to know that there's it, that to know that there's meaning to being hopeful.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, like maybe yeah. that load will, will feel lighter.
2: I think that goes to your question before. Certainly those of us who come from a God-oriented tradition and relate to that, we would say, yes, it does lighten our burden. Um, It's often said, many of my Christian colleagues will often remind you, cast it upon God, cast your burden. Um, And it's true. I think it does lighten that load. I think it's also knowing that we're part of a grander picture. It helps us face the finality and mortality of our lives um, by seeing us as part of the immortality. In fact, going back to the Torah blessings, mm-hmm. one of those two blessings is a blessing before the reading and a blessing after. The blessing after um, says, uh, you have given us eternal life. Well, of course, it's not likely that any of us individually are going to live forever, although that's potentially debatable. Um But we have an eternal life that's planted right in our midst, right there. There's an eternity and an eternal quality that we can always tap into. And that helps. That helps us get through. It also helps when we study our history, study the tribulations that we've been through in the past, um, to know how we've gotten through and that we've always gotten through. Just last week, the Torah portion was about the crossing of the Red Sea. And um, there's, uh, we were faced with an, an impossible situation, the oppressing army chasing you, uh, facing the sea. What are your options? To give up, to kill yourself, to drown yourself, to go back to slavery? What are the options? And faced with the impossible, and yet miracles it teaches us to occur. And somehow we got through. And I'm often fond of saying in our services, the power that was with us then is the power that is with us now.
1: And forgive me for my simplistic language and thinking, but I think what you describe, if you believe in, if you have faith, I think it's it makes things seem so much less scary. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of faith carrying you, that you're not alone, that there's that connection, hopefully within the four realms that you described earlier, that we are connected to each other.
2: Yeah. Uh, Yes, without question, I agree with you. I think for those of us who have a faith tradition drawing on that faith maybe if you don't have a faith tradition drawing on the faith in humankind ultimately or whatever it is but I would agree with you faith does get us through it helps it makes all the difference in Hebrew the word truth and faith are somewhat related and in fact uh, out of that uh, crossing of the Red Sea uh, comes a prayer that is in all really our prayer services morning and evening every day that reminds us that there is this power that we can tap into. And it's preceded by the word truth or truth and faith sometimes. Uh, In Hebrew, the word faith and the word belief are related words. And truth, a teacher of mine once, I heard on a recording, he said, truth is kind of like the sun uh, at noon, midday. Uh, It can be bright and clear, crystal clear. And that's in itself a discussion, is that even true? But faith, he said, is like the moon. It waxes and wanes. And sometimes it's barely perceptible, barely hanging on. But it comes back. And that's the nature of faith. Mm-hmm. It, it does return. The light does grow again.
1: And the plan to ride it and knowing that, you know, the waxing and waning will come, but you, you have strength to ride it. That's right. And I loved mm-hmm. what you said. You know, even if you don't believe in a higher power, if you believe in humankind as a whole, Or the idea of what we could be.
2: Yes, I love that. What we could be, yes. Together, what we could
1: be together.
2: It's very interesting because um, we're never, on some level, completely satisfied with where we are. Um, There's a little bit in which we're always striving for. Striving for bettering our situation, the world, um, our relationships. It says in the Bible, you shall be holy. Um doesn't mean we aren't also holy, but we shall be. It is something to constantly be striving for. Um, so yes, I would agree with you. And I think our faith does help us do that work.
1: Yeah. I think so. And if I may ask you, I read that in the Kabbalah, God can be understood and described as revealed in ten mystical attributes, or sephirot. Can you describe yes. to us what that was?
2: Sure. The word sephirot, or sephirot, um comes it's actually related to the English word sapphire, which comes from the same root word in Hebrew. It really it's hard to describe completely. In Hebrew, the root word is related to both numbers and stories. Even in English, to, you get the word to recount mm-hmm. is both to tell a story and you can hear how it's related to count. In Hebrew, all those words are related because they come from the same root word, which is really about emanation. And so these are called the divine emanations. That God, one of the many ways we understand how God works in the world are through these um, emanations. And we might call them qualities. It's more than that, it's a bit more active than that. Um, So it's a little bit understood almost like step down stations. So I cannot plug my toaster into the Western power grid, it cannot receive that kind of energy directly. However, it can be stepped down so that it can be received. A more traditional way of, under, of, of describing it might be looking at the bright sun on a bright day with the naked eye. You have to shield your eyes a little bit, perhaps with your hand or, or some object, um, because it's too much for us to receive. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit what it's like what it's about. The divine energy is stepped down, and that's what the sephirod are, these emanations. But practically speaking, it's through qualities that we can understand. So, for example, starting with love, the uh, quality of love, um, how is love received? You know, how can it be received in a healthy and holy way? Sometimes it's by setting boundaries and limits. And so in the Kabbalah, there are boundaries and limits, and these go hand in hand with love. So one of the emanations is called chesed, which means loving kindness, and Right after that, one of the understandings is givura. Gevura means strength, but it comes strength that comes from setting limits and boundaries, um, so that love can be received. And the next one is tiferet, often translated as glory or beauty, but the idea of a harmony, of a balance. That ultimately, all these things must be in balance. So these are examples of the. Um, ten sefirot, the ten qualities or emanations. uh, And the whole world has all of these pulsing through them at the same time because they're the foundational building blocks, you could say, of the world. So we're here in the physical world, the most, um, I guess you can call it the thickest, the most uh, viscous, the hardest world, right? Um, But yet within it is an energy. I mean, we know that from science also, right? Science pulses. I mean, energy energy pulses through everything. And so it is with the spheroid. Those qualities I referred to, love, for example, is in everything. And so is that strength. And so is that balance. They're in absolutely everything. And um, so these are the building blocks of our world. And ultimately, it comes down to us, once again, to tap into that, to be aware of it, to be conscious of it, um, so that we know a table is not just a table. This table that we're sitting in front of, it's wood. so it literally has, you know, tree of life energy in it, right? But it also holds your computer and your paper and the, the things we need for our work in this very conversation. It elevates it to um, a higher level as it were. Um, and so these divine emanations are in absolutely everything and it's uh, it's all it's all in creation. all, all are within all the others. So you can't see one without the other.
1: I love what you said, you know, in terms of, you know, the idea of receiving love. Sometimes in order to receive love, you have to set boundaries as contrary as that would seem. And the idea of spreading that love or that loving kindness. Is, is God love?
2: That's a great question. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, I want to say you remind me of an example that my teacher gave about this boundary issue. Um, we're like children. And yes, I want a chocolate bar. In fact, I want six of them right before dinner. But the parent, and this is, of course, a very hierarchical metaphor, the parent says, no, you may not have that six. You can only have five and a half chocolate bars before dinner, right? And uh, the parent is doing that th- because of love, because of the love, this parent sets a limit um, for the sake of the child. And so sometimes limits come off like they're harsh when sometimes they're really what enables the love to be received. If a metaphor is love is like, uh, let's say, the water, the tea that you offer your guest, that's the symbol of, of, let's say, loving kindness, right? How can it be received if it's not in a vessel? And the, the boundaries are the vessel that enables it to be contained and then given over and received. Is God love?
1: <clears throat> and I love what yeah. you said about that because, and I, I totally, absolutely agree with you. Sometimes with love, in order to really, I guess, grow that love, sometimes protection is needed. And I guess we, in life we need to figure out when that protection is necessary because how many people are there in life who help others Sometimes to exhaustion, but the person that they've denied is themselves yeah like giving love in an empty vessel it yeah. doesn't make sense overall That's you know right. or someone who's abused who doesn't set the boundaries and continues to be abused mm-hmm. I think when one's love is being questioned or not repleted, I think one needs to think about that
2: great I'm so glad you brought it up that way in fact, Um, When we were talking about the spheroth, these emanations earlier, the third one that I had mentioned, often uh, understood as balance or harmony, is also associated with compassion, the place of compassion. Now, sometimes people would want to associate that in the realm of love, and all of them are related to all of them, obviously. But... In this understanding, it's compassion, because compassion is that balance of love and its containers. Um, The Hebrew word, and this is true in Arabic too, for compassion comes from the same word as womb, a mother's womb. It is this contained unit in some way so that that love can be received and nurtured. Yeah. So is God And I love that, by the way. (laughs) As a mom, I'm sure you would relate to that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I liked the question, is God love? Because it's often put out there that God is love. And I'm not going to argue with that. Who's going to argue with that? But I would say, if I would quibble a little bit, we might more likely say love is a, uh, an aspect or a reflection or an emanation of God. It's one of the ways God works in the world. God is beyond just love, you could say, although that is at the core of our connection to God. That's why I mentioned it first. In the understanding of the spherot, there are some that are very abstract, but there are some that are called the seven lower spherot that are really uh, almost more tangible in this world. And it begins with this word chesed, which means loving kindness. Um, And so that is a way in which God works in the world. Love is a way in which God works in the world. And one of our um, doorways or or avenues for us to connect with God Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it be through acts of kindness, through feeling states. You know, as I'm speaking, I'm remembering how I speak with children sometimes about God. In Hebrew, the word for spirit is the same as the word for wind. And I think that maybe in English there's a connection to through the Latin, I think, inspiration, bringing mm-hmm. the spirit in, but then there's also respiration, right? So it's obviously related. In Hebrew, ruach, which means spirit, is also wind. And I'll sometimes say, can you see God? Can you see the spirit? And um, most people would say, you can't, or, you know, it's hard to answer. But if I say, can you see the wind? The kids almost always will say, yes, I can see the leaves blowing. I said, ah, you're not seeing the wind. You're seeing the effects of the wind. You're seeing how it interacts with the world, how it is felt, right? And so it is with spirit. I can't necessarily see it, but I can see how it works in the world. And so it is with these first of the emanations, with love. I can't see love, but I can see love because I can see how it works, how it comes through you, how it comes through my own act of kindness, how, um, how it manifests. I can feel it, but I can't necessarily see it directly. I only know how it works. It, it, it reminds me of another place in the Torah where, God, uh, where Moses says to God, I want to see you. Uh, see your face. And God says, you cannot see my face and live, but you ca- I will pass before you. I'll pass. allow all my goodness to pass before you. In other words, we can see the effects. We can see how spirit, how love, how God moves through the world. And in this way, we can be so moved.
1: I love that. And I love how you described how love is one of the ways in which God works in our world. What are some of the other ways? Is spirit one of them then?
2: Spirit, Mm -hmm. um, also limits and boundaries is Mm -hmm. also an aspect of God, even though that often feels harder or harsher. Um,
1: You would think that the word no is not uh part of God, but
2: maybe it is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, because, well, uh, I'm always uh, careful of saying part of. Because you know this is my training. is mm-hmm. kind of like God does not have parts. God mm. is the ultimate simplicity. It's all one, right? Um, but certainly, how God works in the world is through no as well as through yes. In fact, the commandments are said to be both positive and negative commandments. Thou shalt do this. Thou shalt not do that. And thou shalt not do is also really important right? So the golden rule, as we talk about sometimes, um, you know, often said to be do unto others, right? Uh, in uh, one of our ancient sages formulated it in the negative, because it's very practical for people in some ways, and it says a lot, that which you don't like, or we wouldn't have done to you, don't do unto others, right? Or basically try and have a, a, a real awareness and a caring of others. So there are things that which we um, need to restrain from and hold back in order that love be received, and so yes, that is a way God works in the world. God works through um, eternity. God works through uh, the magic of form and shape. Uh, God works through righteous acts. So all of these are the way God works in the world. Coming back to what I said earlier, God's name. What isn't God's name? In my classes, I often will say to people, "Who are you?" and get a volunteer, and will say, who are you? You say, I'm Michelle. And that's not who you are. That's your name. Your name is a symbol word, a handle for who you are. Um, who you are is a whole lifetime of experiences and relationships and interests and so forth. And if that's true of our finite lives, how much more so is that also true of the infinite and eternal? You cannot limit God. So God's name is all existence. So all existence becomes a way for us to get to know God. Um, it's like the old um uh king and I getting to know you, getting to know that's that's what all it is. All about <laughs> exactly you. <laughs> you get it.
1: <laughs> I love that. You know, I think I think maybe we really are the ones that truly limit ourselves. Hmm.
2: Interesting. Yeah. Not God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, Certainly the um, possibility for getting to know God is limitless. Mm-hmm. Limitless. There is uh, someone who I became friends with years ago had converted to Judaism, but she learned this growing up, I think, in Christian science or somewhere. There is no spot where God is not. I love that um, because everything, every encounter, every experience— becomes um, a a possibility for coming to know God. Everything has that possibility, everything. And uh, so, yes, I would agree with you. In that sense, we do not need to limit ourselves. You know, it doesn't mean that everything is an equal venue for us or that we should do everything. There are limits, as we talked about. But um, But that is that everything becomes a possibility for us to get to know God.
1: And that maybe if everything is a possibility, maybe we need to keep our eyes and hearts open.
2: Mm, beautiful.
1: To feel it or see it.
2: I'm glad you said that because the first name that God reveals to Moses at the burning bush, Asher Ehyeh, uh, which most literally means I will be who I will be. Often translated as I am that I am due to some quirks of the Hebrew grammar. You could understand it in all those ways, but I will be what I will be it is a name of possibility. It really represents that there is an unfolding. And so our understanding of God, God willing, will only grow and, um, and hopefully be used for good in this world and for healing. It's a possibility. So we have to keep ourselves open to the possibilities. Um, in fact, Moses said, the people are going to ask me, who sent, who sent you to us? And God says, tell them, I will be sent you. I will be. That is God's name. And then the other thing you remind me of is that when we bear witness to the unity of God, when we recite that prayer called the Shema, that God is one, central to our tradition, um, it's immediately followed by the words, and you shall love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Um, There's a blessing of love that comes before it, God's great love for us, And our love for God that comes right after it. So this bearing witness to the unity is embedded in love. So keeping our hearts open, keeping ourselves open to possibility, and our hearts open to um, using and seeing and becoming conduits of love uh, absolutely is one of the ways, maybe the most important way for us to come to know God. Love your neighbor as yourself.
0: That's so
1: powerful. Yeah. And if I may ask you, you know, this is one of the stories as I was reading about what the Kabbalah is. You know, I found the story from Zohar Mm. and the parable of the king with the misbehaving son. And I read that the translation could be described as, I guess there's this king who had a very misbehaving son and he tried to teach him by using all these measures. But ultimately, this son was going to be exiled because he was misbehaving to no degree. And then I read as a description I will discipline you, forcing you into exile. But if you think that I will abandon you, myself too shall go along with you." That this king was going to exile himself with the son. Yeah.
2: Powerful, isn't it? You know, in a way, you refer to, um, I just want to make sure that it's clear, the Zohar is one of the central mystical texts in our tradition. Uh, and it purports to be older than it likely is historically, but it's old. Uh, but it all draws on that which is even earlier, hence Kabbalah receiving earlier traditions. Even what you describe can be found in the Bible, right? God speaks to us that way. The chastisements of love, for example. I mean, you can hear the metaphor, the king being a kind of a traditional metaphor of understanding God and these uh, chastisements, but yet I will never abandon you. That's throughout the prophets and the Torah. Um, So I would say that that is a really important understanding, particularly when you look at Jewish history. Uh, We have been in exile from our land historically. Uh, It's both um, uh, religious and historical references there. And yet, there's this concept of God, an aspect of God called the Shekhinah, meaning the indwelling presence. Because the presence dwells in everything, the presence also dwells in us, even in our travails and even in our exile. So even though there's a way in which we are perhaps pushed away or turned out or punished or it's just so many ways of understanding what is that seeming negativity, um, nonetheless, God is always there. In the Torah portion, in a couple of weeks, God says... uh, let them build me a sanctuary, and I will dwell amongst them. doesn't say I will dwell in the sanctuary. I will dwell in them. Yeah. God is in our midst. And so this concept of an aspect of God, God's self being in exile, is essential to Jewish understanding. As long as we are in exile, whether we mean specifically, let's say, a people from their land, or whether we mean more broadly us as individuals or as people's uh, distanced from God, you know, or whether there's just misfortune and wrong in the world, so many ways to understand that. Um, yet God is still there with us in that difficulty. God, God's self, experiences uh, that pain, those tears, that separation, that longing. And so much of our tradition is about longing to reunite these aspects of divinity itself. In Kabbalah, there is um, an intention that's often done before a mitzvah, before a uh, commandment, before a ritual, where we say, we pause and say, for the sake of the unification of the Holy One, Blessed Be, and the Shekhinah. Um, In other words, for the sake of the unification of God, in the broadest sense, and the Shekhinah, the indwelling sense, the transcendent and the imminent. These aspects of God that are always there across time and space and the aspect of God that is in right here in this moment, in this place. And I do this mitzvah, this commandment for the sake of bringing about a unity. I'm sorry. So, um, we paused there for just a moment because there were some noises from your kids coming from the house, (laughs) screaming, and perhaps distracting a little bit. It almost highlights exactly what we're saying on some level. Uh, where is God in that? God is exactly in that. You know, how do we interact? How do we properly discipline? How do we keep our focus? I mean, it's in all of that. Um, And, uh,
1: the joy in their screaming. <laughs> right, maybe even that. <laughs> As I feel stressed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I, Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of our great teachers in the 20th century, uh, referred to finding uh, God not only in the, in the cloisters or in the catacombs, but in the skyscrapers. In other words, in the everyday, practical, difficult, muddier stuff of life. That's where we can also find God. And uh, so... Easier said, but that's our challenge, isn't it?
1: And I loved your description because even that parable, you know, it just seems like the relationship with God is multidirectional. Mm-hmm. You know, the humility of the Son, knowing that He's not alone, or the humanity from the King yeah. or God, Yeah. you know? Because how many times in life when someone, a simpler analogy, when someone is fired— most of us sever that relationship while we can help promote the change so that then that person's next step could be better
2: yeah yeah i like what you said multi-directional um certainly our tradition would say that it's multi-directional and that there's a relationship relationship is inherently two ways at least two ways right um and in fact it's often said that's why the Torah in Hebrew begins with the letter bet, the second letter. In Hebrew, uh, the beginning of the Torah, which often translated in English as in the beginning, is bereshit. You can hear the B sound, in other words, the second letter. And that's because creation is inherently a relationship. There is the relationship both uh, from one direction and then from the other direction, uh, and then, oftentimes, out into multi-directions. So, yes, and it's a covenantal relationship. We both have uh, roles to play here. Um, but you mentioned like cutting relationships off sometimes. So that's very interesting when it comes down to actual practical applications. Uh, now, what do we do? And it's true. Sometimes we cut off. Maybe for some for some people, let's say divorce or quitting a job or whatever sometimes it is better to maybe make a clean break but in general in relationship that relationship doesn't end Mm -hmm. you know even though an aspect of the relationship ends it doesn't end my ex will always be my ex for example right and so how do i relate to that relationship yeah and i love the parable you brought in because uh even though in this case the king is uh Exiling I guess the the sun or sending out the sun he goes with him at the same time because that's where the learning happens that's where the relationship continues to evolve
1: that it's not forgotten it's that there's forgotten. a continuity there
2: that's right that's right uh, one of the prophets um, you know often uh, speaks to relationship to God as if it's a lover relationship. Now, that's problematic sometimes from a modern sensibility. Uh, There's a certain sexism in the language and uh, speaks of divorce. Um, But he also says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in, you know, justice and righteousness and in love and compassion. I will betroth you to me in faith and you shall know God
1: It's beautiful, isn't it? It is beautiful.
2: Traditionally, um, one says that every morning when putting on one of the ritual prayer items. um, And as you wrap this around one of your fingers, it's often seen as like uh, every day recommitting to your um, betrothal relationship with God. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Also a metaphor.
1: It is true. And, you know, I try to say prayers almost every day. And one feeling that I get when I say them is that I never feel alone. Mm-hmm. as simple as that.
2: That's one of the powerful things and beauties about prayer. A lot of moderns, certainly in my own community, often um, feel distanced from prayer, uh, maybe in part because of um, misunderstanding or a lack of understanding about God, maybe because some of you had a bird land on your head. <laughs> That's awesome. literally. Literally landed on your head. You know, the bird is often seen as a uh, metaphor for the shekhinah, for the indwelling presence. And we long for that presence to land on us. And because we're in such um, hyper mode most of the time, (laughs) it doesn't allow it to land. And look at that. I've never had that happen. (laughs) Ah, It's powerful. The calmness of the situation allowed this bird to land on your head. I'm thankful for
1: the lack of poop. But yes. (laughs)
2: I'm very grateful this moment right Absolutely. now. Absolutely, <laughs> but wow, what a beautiful symbolism! That's great. Uh, in fact, uh, we often there's an expression uh, on the wings of the Shekhinah on the wings of the presence. Um, but it uh, uh, remind me where we were.
1: Um,
2: I lost. My I can't train remember. Of, that's good. So <laughs> we're, we're meant to move on yeah. from it, perhaps I guess. But um, uh, that was that was so beautiful just now. <laughs> <laughs> I loved seeing that.
1: Um, and I didn't know, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, um, but the tree of life, mm-hmm. I didn't know that it was the central Kabbalah teaching, mm-hmm. the tree of life, mm-hmm. the imagery that we see everywhere in Santa yeah. Cruz, the yeah. tree of life. Yeah. Can you explain what that is?
2: Yeah. Um, so again, it's uh, it's in the Torah as something in the perhaps mythical origins of all creation of the world, that there is a tree of life right here in the heart of the garden, right? Um And later in Bible, it says that the Torah itself is a tree of life, and then the Torah blessings refer to itself as a tree of life. So in other words, there is a way to access um, perhaps that eternal quality of life uh, by way of our relationship with the sacred, certainly with sacred scripture. And so when it gets extended into Kabbalah, these divine emanations are called the tree of life, in fact. Um, those ten we are called the tree of life in Kabbalah. And so, in other words, these ways that God works in the world is called the tree of life. So, like Torah itself, tree of life has got a narrower uh, interpretation and a broader interpretation. Um, so, you almost can't see them as separate. You almost can't see it as separate from life itself or from existence itself. I have a uh, running uh, joke with a couple of my congregants, because based on a spoof we did for one of our holidays, I had a character that no matter what the character was saying, it always came down to this person saying it's all one it's all one and of course it is that's exactly what the traditions about you, we can caricature ourselves in saying that but ultimately that's what it comes down to it's all one there is an interconnectedness that stands between and within uh you know all existence and that interconnectedness is another way of understanding god just like you say uh, I wouldn't say God is love, but I would say God is found in love. I would say God is found in that interconnectedness of all things.
1: I love that. And that perhaps like even spiritual practice and learning, right, is best expressed in <laughs> I express when you walk your talk.
2: I love that you brought us back to because that's what we were talking about mm-hmm. before the bird was prayer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, I was saying before that so many people are distant from prayer, maybe because they're feeling distant from an understanding of God, but also because so many of our prayers in all our traditions are wrote or written in an older style of language or maybe in a, in a, a manner that doesn't work with, our current sensibilities. Um, but when we do open ourselves up to prayer, um, it does help. It does make us feel more connected. It does help us handle things uh, uh, that we're not alone, that we um, have a power that we can tap into. It's a remind a lot of times prayer is a reminder to ourselves of what we already know. You know, in our tradition it often describes again how God works in the world. One of our prayers is, um, blessed are you who evens the evenings. One of them is, blessed are you who loves your people. One of them is, who saves. you know. So these are all attributes and understandings of how God works in the world. And prayer can help us uh, access that and keep it in our awareness, our consciousness.
1: And our, our reminders.
2: Reminders.
1: And Very a much. reminder, perhaps. To not live your life in hypocrisy.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, to
1: live what you, you know, to live the way you live and the change that you want to see in the world.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It says uh, in the Torah. Don't think
1: one thing and do another. You know, don't think one thing, but act in another way.
2: Yeah. uh, Like you were saying before, to walk your talk. You know, how do we live with integrity in some ways, you know? All these things, whether it be through study or prayer, or um, deeds of kindness, um, whether it be in uh, the most abstract ways, uh, you know, the mystical ways, or whether it be through the simple act of kindness, Um, all of these things are so that we can remember, it says in prayer, so that you remember but, and so that you remember and do all the mitzvot, do all these mm-hmm. things that connect the spiritual world and the physical world. The And you will do all these things that unite heaven and earth. Um, and you will be holy to your God. And then it goes on to say, for I am the power that brought you out of Egypt, that brought you out of not only literally slavery, literally oppression, but a place of a narrow mind. A place of narrowness, so that I can be a God for you. That's what it literally says in scripture. You can come out of a constricted mindset. And all these things are ways to help us do it. I
1: love that. And how are you going to think and live? I will be. Rabbi Eli, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. You know, thank you so much for such a humbling inspirational talk. I'm so grateful. Thank you.
2: I'm grateful. Thank you for having me here with you.
0: See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us, Lost or Found Podcast, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube.